Hello, and welcome to the Writers of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host, and today we have a very special guest. We've had him before a couple times, one for Writers of the Future and also for our To the Stars podcast, Kevin J. Anderson. Hi, Kevin. <laughs> Hi, John. It's great to see you virtually, and, and I'm, I'm sitting here in my library with the cat that just crawled up behind my head, and I've been uh, out writing today and doing emails and interviews, and, you know, it's just kind of like a normal day, except we're just doing things differently now. So um, happy to be on your podcast again, and I will try to be um, not contradict anything I said before. I'm sure this is going to be just fine. We're going to do a, basic, a few basic uh, questions, and then I also posted that I was going to be doing an interview with you today, and I had several people write in with questions they wanted me to ask you as well. So I'll get to that as well. And then we're going to talk about um, a subject very near and dear to you, which is uh, your professorship. Thank you. And, uh, how that uh, how that whole thing is evolving since the last time we spoke. You're now your master's degree, right? With in right, I'm I'm running a graduate program at Western Colorado University and uh, getting a degree in a master's degree in publishing. So, um, I think some of your listeners might be interested in that if they're also writers of the future entrants and and uh, fans and supporters. Good, I'm sure they will. Well, actually, we probably should just go right into that since we're already talking about it because I read that blog you sent to me and. She obviously really liked your program a lot because she said Kevin teaches the importance of patience, kindness, and professionalism in the industry. And I think that's really important and maybe something that a regular program wouldn't necessarily cover if they themselves hadn't gone through the, um, the whole evolution that you have from, I mean, I remember seeing you at, at Comic-Con and you're schlepping your own books. You just, you know, the, the importance of making fans and friends and just building on that. And you've now got yourself an amazing career as a result. So tell me a little bit about, you know, what makes your program different, your master's program different? Well, one of the things that, that as you become successful as a writer, that becomes more and more important is that you need to pay it forward and you need to uh, teach the next generation, the next generation after that. And uh, for writers, there's no like trade secrets. You have to share it with everybody else and you have to um, help other writers understand because uh, uh, in fact, on my webpage, I think I have the motto that I made all the mistakes so you don't have to. Uh, yeah. So you learn and then you try to teach people to uh, to get better at it. And and for many, many years, I've, I've kind of uh, pursued teaching and helping out other writers. I mean, as, as you know, I, I don't even remember how many years, probably 25 years I've been a guest instructor at Writers of the Future and a, and a right. judge. So we've, right. we've uh, taught the new students at Writers of the Future for year after year. Uh, my wife, Rebecca Mesta, and I have given countless uh, workshops and, and writers panels at like 20-some Dragon Cons and San Diego Comic Cons and all these other places. Uh, and then I think 11 years ago, we founded a, a large and impressive uh, professional writing seminar called the Superstars Writing Seminars that we formed with uh, Eric Flint and, and David Farland and Brandon Sanderson and um, James Artemis Owen and Rebecca Mesta. So we're, we're in our 11th year of that. I'm kind of rambling, but what I'm trying to get at is that, that teaching and helping out has been kind of a core of my my identity as a writer and a and a publisher and uh, a lot of different things came together because the publishing world itself really um, sort of hit a, a a breakwater point about ten or eleven years ago when uh, all sorts of things happened. Borders Books went out of business. Uh, Anderson News, one of the major book distributors, they went out of business. 
Um, Amazon took off. Everybody bought a Kindle for the very first time. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's sort of like a perfect storm that changed publishing for everybody. And those of us who sort of who knew how it used to work, that you'd send in a book to your, your agent who would sell it to one of the big publishers, and then you would turn around and write the next book, and then you'd write the next book. And that's kind of all that happened. But uh, we really had to evolve and learn this whole new business that writers had to become their own publicity machines. They had to become their own uh, instructors and share information. They had to become indie publishers. So all of this has kind of set me up for um, wearing countless hats and how to have a whole career, not just as a, a writer of science fiction, but as a promoter of my own work, as a publisher of science fiction, all of that. So anyway, um, just this past uh, two years ago, I got uh, hired by Western Colorado University to uh, resurrect. They had an old uh, master's degree, uh, Master of Arts degree program in publishing. And they have a very large and impressive department in the graduate program of creative writing. And they have uh, entire programs in genre fiction writing, which is it's an amazing program, and screenwriting and poetry and nature writing. Well, they, they added publishing to it. And I'm creating this entire graduate program, master's degree, that you can learn all about publishing, both from the traditional side and from the new model indie side with eBooks and print on demand and, and self-publishing. And so I've, I've created this program and I, I basically wrote everything that I think people need to know about the whole business. And we had the very first year, which uh, was last July, it started out. We had a full cohort, nine students, and we taught them all the things about copyright and book design and cover design and contracts and bad contracts and book distribution and bookstores and, and uh, laying out things. And what was really cool is for our, our project, uh, the group project that the whole students did is they edited an original anthology that they came up with their idea for the anthology. It's called Monsters, Movies, and Mayhem. It's sort of like all kinds of stories about movies and monsters and theater. And, and so they, and we got funding, a uh, generous donation from draft to digital so that we could pay professional rates for these stories. Uh, they wrote up the description of the book. They did all the listings. And then they sat back and got flooded with submissions. I think 435 submissions that the students then had to read through the slush pile and, and choose the stories that they liked. And, and it wasn't quite so easy as just picking the good ones because you know, you had to pick the good ones, but you had to balance them. You couldn't have like 10 werewolf stories in the book, for instance. And right. they couldn't all be funny stories or they couldn't all be scary stories. They had to be this this nice mix. And, and they had a firm budget because they only had so many dollars that they could pay for. And, and it was a real learning experience to go through that the slush pile, just like what what your people do for the Writers of the Future submissions every every quarter, just the mountains of manuscripts that come in and you're looking for these gems. Uh, and so anyway, the students edited these these stories, they picked them out, they they wrote all the rejection letters, they wrote all the contracts, they, they interacted with the authors to get the copy edits done, uh, they designed the cover, they, they laid out the whole book and put it together and it comes out this July, which is when they all graduate. It'll be their kind of their graduation thing. And uh, we just got a starred featured review and Publishers Weekly for that book. So they did a great job of, of doing it. And then for their, their solo project, that was a big group project. And then for their solo project, uh, each one of them had to study copyright law and then they had to go find a public domain work, like an 
Edgar Allan Poe or H.G. Wells or Jules Verne or Alexander Dumas, something like that. And they had to find a book that they felt should be back in print. And then from that point on, that was their project. They found the text, whether they had to get an old copy of the book and scan it, or they, they found it online somewhere. And then they, they edited it and proofread it, and they designed the cover, and they laid the whole thing out by hand, start to finish. Uh, they got uh, big-name writers to write forewords or introductions to it. Uh, and then, uh, again, all these books are being published over the course of the next uh, several months. And each one of these things, uh, their solo book has their name on the copyright page as edited by, and it's the student name. And they're, all their names are as editors on the Monsters, Movies, and Mayhem anthology. So they come out of this thing having you know, hands-on experience. And now, of course, they're, they're going to be running Amazon ads. They're, they sent them out for reviews. They're going to do the whole promotion and marketing part of the book. So this is really a all-around everything they need to know about uh, publishing. And then they get a, a master's degree from it, too. Uh, I guess the reason I'm talking about it so long and the reason why uh, we wanted to, to get this on right up at the interview here in the podcast is uh, we still are open for the next group of students, which starts in July. And I guess I should mention that this is online. It's a, it's a low residency degree. So even whether or not there's a pandemic, you can still do it at home and you can take your, your classes. And in normal times, you're supposed to, we're supposed to have two weeks in person, face to face uh, on the campus, which is in the beautiful Colorado mountains. It's a great place to be. And, and I, I just love being with the students and, and kind of building a, a community there. But you know, this year we, we just have to do it virtually and we're going to uh, do it all online. We've got, I think, 11 terrific guest speakers who are coming in and it's just, it's a one-year program and it's almost all online. So uh, if you, uh, you'll probably put a, a link on this podcast if you can, but, but if you just, just search under uh, Western Colorado University and publishing, it, it should come up. You'll, you'll find it somewhere. And, and it's a great program and I'm, I'd be happy to answer questions for it. So, so that's my, you know, kind of my personal goal here is to try to get people uh, interested to sign up. So I have another a full group of students. Uh, but in the meantime, as I'm doing that, uh, I'm also, as you know, a, a judge for Writers of the Future. So every every quarter or whenever we get picked as, as judges, we get our stack of stories. I'm working on uh, writing a bunch of new books. I'm writing a bunch of new comic scripts. And, you know, it's things are different now when under uh, quarantine restrictions and, and the things we have to pay attention to. But as a writer, you have still find some way of writing the stories and and uh, killing off your characters or whatever you need to do with them here. Well, that's great. And I can totally see why this is, is different than probably the, any other uh, master's program because rarely are they going to have someone who's already themselves a multiple New York Times bestselling author who is familiar with every aspect of publishing, which you are, to be able to uh, to mentor these, you know, these students to however they want to be able to expand and, and move into publishing. They've got real life firsthand experience that they can pull from. And then they've also got a relationship with you following their, you know, their, their program. Well, and I, I really try to make it a balance between both sides of publishing because a lot of people are really gung ho and want to do everything on, on their own through uh, Kindle Unlimited or, or uh, Amazon and eBooks and, and all those platforms. And there are still a lot of people that, that are looking 
to find a way to get published by HarperCollins or by Tor Books or by Bantam or whatever the, the old standbys are. And I just want people to have a, a full, broad perspective on what publishing is like so that uh, they can make their own decisions. But, you know, one of the real important things is this isn't a dusty old program. It's not something that I could just call up the lectures and teach the same thing every single year because it just changes. I mean, it, I'm I'm doing my best to stay one step ahead of the students just because all the rules change and publishers are going out of business and, and Amazon changes the criteria and what works on Facebook ads this month is going to be different on Amazon ads next month. And, and uh, so, I mean, basically one of our textbooks is to be reading every week's issue of Publishers Weekly so that you can keep on top of all the, of all the changes in book selling and publishing. And, you know, I guess I want to emphasize because all the people in your podcast, a lot of the talking is about uh, writing techniques and and story structure and and world building and and uh, character development. But um, nowadays, being a writer is not enough. You have to know all the other aspects of the business too. That's right, and that's why we try to on the on the podcast. We definitely have that, but we also try to get you know people like yourself and Rebecca when you did your. One of the first talks you did, you talked about the business end of writing because that's one thing that is is one of your biggest contributions when you when you speak to the winners is it's fine you're 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 here because you can write but can you make a living at it can, when do you need to phase over to just being a writer at what point can you do that and you really get into the nuts and bolts of the business of writing which is so important. Well, and it's it's hard to learn. It's, I mean, a lot of your creative people, you like to make up stories. You like to, you like to tell things and maybe you don't want to track your sales on Amazon and maybe you don't want to go to conventions or, or uh, do talks at the library and promote your books. Cause you know, a lot of writers are introverts. They're shy. They, they don't want to spend all this time going out and, and, meeting people. Well, of course, they're probably doing well now in the pandemic because you can't go out and meet people as much, but right. you still have to like maybe work on social media and you have to work on your, uh, your website and you have to work on a Twitter following and, and Instagram and, and everything that you need to do. It's, it's probably half of my time is spent uh, promoting and doing business stuff. And the other half is spent uh, writing the new books. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if it was up to me, I'd rather just write the book. So that'd be my, my favorite part, but it means so much to me that I can keep making a living as a writer that you do what you have to do. And nowadays making, making a living as a writer is not just writing stories. It means maybe doing public speaking. It means maybe teaching. It means maybe contracting out your services as a proofreader or an editor. I mean, there's all kinds of things that I still think consider that they fit under the whole umbrella that I'm making a living by doing something I love as a writer publisher, rather than uh, having to go off and get a job as a, as a greeter at Walmart or although I guess my, my fantasy non-writer job would be a, a forest national forest fire lookout ranger. So I could just be sitting up there and, writing all day long and every once in a while look out at the trees okay no smoke next thing so um like i said i did have a few um people that asked uh questions when i posted that we're gonna be doing this interview and so let me just start off here with this uh jim meskman you know jim Uh um 
he wrote, how, your pra- how you practice of dictating stories while hiking on mountain trails developed. I'm amazed by that skill or set of skills. Well, I'm, I had so many people ask me questions about this that finally last summer, it was almost exactly a year ago. No, it was, it was literally at the last year's Writers of the Future award ceremonies. Uh, one of your other uh, winners, Martin L. Shoemaker, is, is one of my, uh, my students who has learned how to do dictating. And he's just jumped into it head first. And he does all of his work by dictating. And in fact, he, he often now will just do this little shtick where he, if he's on a stage at a convention, that somebody will give him an idea and he'll close his eyes and he will just dictate a story off the top of his head and just write it that way. Um, so last year, Martin and I just kind of put our heads together. and We decided to write a book about all the techniques on, on being a dictator. And so that's the book called On Being a Dictator. Right. It's all kinds of different advice and different, different techniques. But, but I'll go back to how I did it. Like I'll, so I was sitting at the keyboard like, like most writers were. And I was, you know, you'd get stumped or, you know, where does my story go? Or I don't feel like I, I know the character very well. And I, I learned that the best way that I can free up my creativity is I go for a walk. I like to just sort of, you know, walk down local bike paths or, or I've got plenty of trails that are near where I live now. And I would just go for a walk and just let my mind wander and, and think about, you know, how do I set up this scene or how do I uh, do the grand finale battle in this epic novel or or get a little more background on the, on the character. And I would take a... Uh, like a little notepad with me and I'd stop and jot things down by hand or, or sometimes I would turn around and like run back home and try to type up everything that I could remember that I I developed. And, you know, there are real problems to that technique, especially if it's raining outside, trying to write everything down is not a good idea at all. Um, So I started taking a, uh, at the time it was a micro cassette recorder with me that I would just carry it with me. And, and whenever I'd have an idea, I would just, dictated. These are just notes for myself, like like maybe the brief life story of one of my minor characters or or just some twists and turns of uh, like an undersea city that I was creating for one of my stories. And I would just go and I'd talk into the tape recorder. And then when I'd get home, I could replay my notes to remind myself. And I got to the point where I really liked doing that. I could walk for miles and miles and I would plot an entire book and I'd get the chapters down and I'd, I'd do some of the world building. And my outlines grew more and more and more detailed as I was just dictating them. I put more details into the, like the, the conflict and the grand battle at the end or something that it evolved into me just dictating the first draft of it. And again, this was 20 some years ago that I first started it. Mm-hmm. And I just got to the point where I love hiking. That's one of my favorite things to do. I'd go out mm-hmm. on trails. I'd go into national parks. I'd go into, uh, we lived in California. I would go to Death Valley every year. And that's where I wrote a whole bunch of my dune books. Uh, I'd go into the Sierra Nevada mountains and, and hike around. And that's where I wrote a bunch of Star Wars uh, things that I worked on. And it just got to the point where this is the, this is the way that I like to write. I can be out hiking and I doing my day's work. I mean, that that's the best office I can imagine. And so I would just go out and if you think about it, when you're right, when you're sitting in front of a screen and you're writing, you're, you're thinking up a sentence in your head and then you're typing it out with your fingers. Well, I would think up the sentence in my head and it would just out come out my mouth. Mm. I mean, you know, lots of people that just have things come out their mouth without thinking about it. So I'm at least thinking about it first. And, that's good. and 
And so I, I train myself and I have a, um, I have a dedicated, it's a typing service that every time I come in now, fortunately it's all digital recorders. So I'll come in almost every single morning. I'll go out and do two chapters, which uh, if you think about it, I'll, I'll like walk down a trail one direction until I finish writing a chapter, which means I'm just far enough away from my car that I can turn around and do another chapter by the time I come back. And so I'll come home and I just upload the audio file to the typing service. And usually within day, within a day, they send me back my uh, my transcribed audio and then not edited. I mean, I, there's a couple more drafts of editing it, but I'd sure rather do my first draft while I'm out on a trail than do my first draft while I'm stuck with my butt in a chair looking out the window at how beautiful it is outside. So. Yeah. Well, good. Well, thank you for that. Wolf Moon uh, wrote... Uh, he has a couple questions here. First is, how important is it to have a literary agent today? And do you have one? What are the pros and cons? Wow, that's that's a tough question. It's one of those that, that changes practically monthly as, as things are going on. Um, I do have a literary agent. I have a literary agent that I've had for a very long time. And he's made a whole lot of uh, you know, major, major deals for me with major publishers. Um, but it's, it's sort of evolved and adapted so that my agent does the projects that I want the agent to do. Whereas if I'm going to indie publish something with my own Wordfire Press, if I, if I publish a project that I think is more suited for, for my own indie stuff, well, then the agent's not involved. Uh, like, for instance, we've got a bunch of major new Dune projects that Brian Herbert and I are doing. Well, those are those are big deals and a lot of legal complexities because there's a movie and a TV show and there's computer games and there's comic books and, and you've got to make sure that those contracts are really well done and, and nothing steps on anything else. Well, in that case, I want my agent to be handling everything, but um, I recently published a four volume collection of all of my published short fiction over the, last 30 some years. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a huge project to do. And I, it was like 140 short stories that I broke up into four volumes. You know, there's two volumes of science fiction stories and one volume of fantasy and one volume of, of horror and dark fantasy. And I wrote a little introduction for each one of those. Well, there's no me. I mean, HarperCollins isn't going to publish something like that. And Bantam isn't going to publish something like that. That's just it. That's a project that is much more suited to me releasing it myself, promoting it myself, uh, doing my own cover design. And, and I do like, I mean, I've done a lot of cover design. I've done a lot of graphic design. So I, I like to have control over that. And those projects, of course, the agent's not involved at all in. Now, one of the interesting things that I, I mean, that was a lot of work. I can't tell you, that was a lot of work to sure. put together 130 some stories and four and volumes and all that stuff. That. Uh, well, I mean, for, for me, the hardest part was just digging up the first publication so that I could get the copyright line right. Now, where, what issue of what magazine and what year was this published? And you got to put all that in the fine print at the end. Right. But one of the really nice things is these stories were just scattered all over the place. It took me forever to, to pull them together. But now I've got a Hollywood manager and, and I've got film interest in some of my stuff and they love short stories. So now when somebody comes to me and says that they need a funny vampire story, well, I'll just look through these four volumes and pick it up and go, ah, here's one. And I send it off to them. And so it was well worth the effort doing it. But in that particular case, there was no literary agent involved. Right. Now, to, I guess to give a more clear answer to, to Wolf's question, 
if you are going to be an indie writer, if you're planning on publishing it yourself, if pushing it through, whether it's Kindle Unlimited or you're going to go wide off of Kobo and iBooks and, and Nook and all the different platforms, if you're going to run your own ads, if you're going to design your own book, there is no need whatsoever for you to have a literary agent. But if your dream is to get published in Simon & Schuster or to get um, uh, your book released by Little Brown or HarperCollins or something like that, then you may well need to have a literary agent because that's a completely different circle and and different uh, requirements that are involved in it. So I guess it depends on what your path is. Now, the other thing that an agent does is subrights that you might not be able to do yourself. If this is just me, like with my collection of short stories, I wouldn't have the slightest idea how to get it picked up by a Lithuanian publisher. Well, right. my, my agent does have his foreign rights department where they can uh, sell things to Italian publishers, to, um, to French publishers, and to Spanish publishers and things. So that, and in fact, I know some successful indie authors that have a literary agent strictly for the subrights. So that's that's one thing, but the problem is it's it's hard to get a literary agent that's worth having. If if that mm-hmm. makes any sense, that if you if you don't have a lot of credits, then a big agent's not going to be interested in you. And if you get like a, a minor agent who doesn't have a lot of clout, well, then it doesn't do you all that much good to have the agent. So it it's a it's a bit of a catch twenty two there, but. Uh, that would be my answer to Wolf. It depends on what you're trying to do. If, if he's trying to self-publish his own books, well, then then he doesn't need an agent. If he's trying to if he's trying to break into the the big five publishers, well, then you probably do need an agent. Good. Well, that makes sense. Next question here is because of COVID nineteen, what changes do you see in the near future for one traditional publishing, two indie publishing, three small independent publisher, and four audiobooks? Well, I just heard this morning about audiobooks, which is a little it's a little surprising to me because we we listen to audiobooks all the time. I, I work out in my home gym and I'm playing, you know, an hour's worth of an audiobook and, and um my wife is listens nonstop, one book after another after another. Uh but this morning I just heard that a lot of uh audiobooks are starting to audiobook sales are starting to go down because people are staying at home and they aren't commuting anymore. And so a lot of the audiobook uh, interest came from people stuck in traffic listening to their audiobooks all the time. Uh, so that, depending on how our work patterns change, and mm-hmm. this kind of extrapolates to the other part of the answer, I think even if, if everything magically went back to normal and you didn't have to worry about it, I think companies have now learned that it is okay for their employees to work at home. And a lot of people are going to prefer to work at home. And a lot of companies are going to prefer their employees to work at home because they don't have to set up an office for them all the time that they don't have to pay for and all that kind of stuff. So I think our work routine is going to change greatly. And and the reason that's that's affecting traditional publishers is that some of them, like Tor Books and Bain Books, which are big science fiction publishers, they have long had a tradition of uh, having their editors like satellite editors. I mean, my, my editor at Tor or one of my editors at Tor um, works out of her house in Phoenix, Arizona, and she has for 20 years. Um, one of my other editors at Tor works in the office in Manhattan. Well, he's not going to the office anymore. He's staying at home. So what difference does it make if, if 
she's in Arizona and he's in Manhattan. Uh, I think the centralized New York, Manhattan is the heart of the publishing industry. That might just dwindle away because what does it matter what building you're sitting in? If you're, if you're reading a manuscript, if you're making zoom calls and, and doing, I mean, you can do design meetings by, by this. Now, as for uh, like, and I kind of lump indie authors and small publishers together because I have Wordfire Press and I'm a small indie publisher, but I do all the same things that an indie author does. We use the same techniques and the same software and everything. I think that this is this is kind of an opportunity for a lot of people because many, many more books are going to be bought directly online, whether it's through Amazon or or barnesandnoble.com or or kobo.com or whatever and if one of the major things that people stuck with traditional publishing for was they wanted to see their books on the shelf in barnes and noble you wanted to have your physical books in a Mm -hmm. physical bricks and mortar bookstore so that people could walk in and browse well show me a barnes and noble bookstore that's open right now none of them are open every book that you're buying you're buying online somehow. And if your if your customers are buying a book because they see a thumbnail image of a really cool cover and they've looked up keywords for dragons and vampires and hot air balloons, well, they can find your indie published book just as easily as they can find a Simon and Schuster book. And I, I think this levels the playing field a lot for indie writers because there just isn't as as large a chunk of important real estate by putting your book into a physical bookstore anymore. I'm not saying people aren't going to buy print books, but they're going to buy a print book from Amazon, which is going to be delivered to their doorstep, which kind of ties back to our writers of the future, which was the original concept is to put all of these new writers on the same level playing field so that they're competing on the, on the merits of what they're doing rather than the, the giant clout that, uh, some big distributor or some big publisher has behind him. Good. That makes sense. And um, now this last question um, was how will authors and publishers that do a lot of selling and promotion at fan cons be able to compensate with these venues shut down? Well, that's, that's really hitting us too, because one of, I mean, a lot of your people know that, that we spent a lot of time going from, Comic-Con to Comic-Con to Comic-Con to science fiction conventions and everything. We had a big traveling bookstore called the uh, the Bard's Tower that my, my friend Alexi Vandenberg is running. We had lots of authors that would that would meet at the convention and we'd stand at the tables and we'd we'd shake hands with the fans and we'd we'd talk about our various books and we'd sign copies and we'd we'd get pictures taken and everything. And you know what? My last convention was Pensacon in Pensacola, Florida, in I believe early March. Everything's in a time warp now. I don't really remember what it is. I think it was early March, and that was the last convention that I went to. Uh, and we sold a lot of books that weekend. But um, I now have a basement full of books, and and what I've started to do now is. Um, We've got a, an online store. It's wordfireshop.com. It's got all of my books and some of my friends' books. And I've just been, I mean, frankly, I'm just trying to clear the shelves and get rid of a lot of these books. But we put up like complete sets and really discounting them. And I autograph everything before I mail it out. 
of course, the, the downside of it is that I can't have employees come over to help do all the shipping and fulfillment anymore. So it's Rebecca and me this morning packing up five boxes of books that had to go off to the, uh, the post office. Um, so that's one of the ways that we're doing it. We do have an online store. Uh, people can buy them cheaper from Amazon. We, we do them at, well, we do a discount or we, we do them at cover price or whatever, but they're all coming autographed and we like to do um, complete sets and, and we're, I mean, we're doing it that way. We're, we're trying to build our own fan base where uh, we're sending out our newsletter more often and, and I'm, I'm giving away more stuff. I mean, I, I just did, in fact, I mean, I'm, I'm going to do this to promote it, but also just because it's an interesting thing that you can see uh, at my, my readers group at wordfire.com is my website, wordfire.com. Right. And we've always had a readers group. Sign up for the readers group and, and you get a free ebook, a collection of my uh, Dan Shamble zombie PI short stories. And that was kind of our, our enticement that we, that, you know, sign up, you get a free book. And then uh, there's a bunch of newsletters that you get. And then we occasionally would give, here's a free story or here's a free um, something or other, just to, to reward the people who are the, the loyal fans and that are actually reading the newsletter. Well, now that I'm, I'm stuck at home, uh, we also found a way that I just, I read one of my short stories. I, you know, I sat down just like I'm doing a reading at a, at a convention or at a library talk or something. Um, I recorded me reading a short story that I wrote with uh, Neil Peart, the drummer from Rush. Mm -hmm. And I just recorded it and I put up the audio file. So if you sign up for my, my readers group, you get a free Kevin reads you a bedtime story thing. And you know, there's, you just download the audio and you play it, but I will probably be doing some more of those. I'm, I'm thinking about sitting up, um, like I am right now reading a story, you know, pull up on my screen and read a short story and put a little YouTube thing up that, uh, I mean, I could either just put it up widely or because what, I mean, you want to have people uh, sign up for the newsletter so that you, you can, can search their addresses. And um, I mean, not to sell them or anything, but, but if I'm doing a, if I ever do book signings again, if I'm doing a book signing in Chicago, I'd like to be able to, call up the names of everybody who lives in the Chicago area and send them an email to say, Hey, come and see me here. So I'm thinking that I'll just record a, probably a, a funny story, a Dan Shamble short story or something like that. And if you sign up for the readers group, you get the, the link to my, uh, the video reading of a short story. And um, who knows it, it's a time where there, you can color outside the lines, you can do different things. And, and if you're doing what everybody else is doing, well, then nobody's going to notice notice you. You've got to do whatever you can. I'm spending more time, you know, on on Facebook and posting pictures of our cats and saying what I cooked for dinner last night because you don't have to be stuck with ramen noodle soup while you're you're in lockdown. It's a constant. You just have to keep doing different things. And and if it doesn't work, well, then. I guess I, I'm sounding like the old old Doctor Ruth. If if it if it does work, then do it. And <laughs> if it doesn't work, don't do it. And you know. All right. Well, that helps on that. And then I got one last question, and this is from um, another uh, Rise of Future uh, fan, Christopher Henkel. He's also a, a writer. How do you determine when a unique POV character is a fresh, compelling idea versus limiting the market by using a narrow demographic as POV? For example. Pneumatic Eskimo, diabetic Quaker, or 1980s metalhead from deep Appalachia. 
I speculate most readers have lived most or all of their lives in the city. Would they connect with these sorts of POVs? Well, if you make them interesting characters and, and tell a good story about them, then that makes it an interesting thing. I mean, uh, I don't want to read a story about somebody exactly like me. I want to read stories about people who are interesting and, and different. Now, I, I I would suggest you don't try to go too bizarre and too overboard. And I mean, I, I, I guess there's a great American novel to be written about a diabetic Quaker. I may, have, <laughs> I, I, I guess I wouldn't make that the entire focus of the story, but uh, there's no reason why you, you can't have that as an interesting character, but you can tell an interesting tale about the, the fish out of water type person. I mean, I, uh, you're sparking ideas about the, the eighties metalhead living in Appalachia. Well, that, what does he do? Does he like, like crank his rush uh, loud music as he's driving up in the, the Blue Ridge mountains or something? That would be hilarious. And, and, uh, he might feel strange and, and, you know, what is he thinking? And, and does that cause his life to, um, I mean, does that cause problems for him? Or is he considered the, the weirdo who's playing Iron Maiden rather than playing, um, Loretta Lynn? I don't know. I mean, that, <laughs> that, but if you make things too bizarre and too quirky, I, I guess you might uh, have people scratch their heads or throw up their hands. But, you know, Elmore Leonard has all kinds of bizarre characters in his books. And I, Larry McMurtry is one of my favorite authors, and he's just one nonstop oddball after another. And, you know, you can certainly make something about it. But, you know, there you can limit it, and you can limit it limit your story possibilities if you this is broadening it out a little bit but there there are so many tv shows where they decide to give the character a kid like the the third season of dexter that suddenly he has a baby so dexter the serial killer uh now has a little baby he has to take care of well that became some interesting problems for several episodes and then everybody wanted him to get back to being dexter so then what does he do he hands the baby off to his in-laws who babysit it and you never see the baby again. Uh, same thing just happened in Homeland with uh, Claire Danes where, you know, she has a baby and that becomes a problem for one season, but then that gets in the way of what are you going to do with the baby when she's supposed to be off doing the same stuff? I mean, she's fighting terrorists and running off in, in Pakistan and stuff. It's a little bit hard if you've got to pick up the kid from daycare every day. So uh, we love the show Bosch. Uh, that uh, Michael Connolly uh, writes those novels, and Bosch is a he's a cop. He he lives alone in the Hollywood Hills. He's got this house way high up in the in the hills, and they made this great thing where he gets a dog and he like rescues a dog, and this dog is with them all the time, and it's great. And then now Bosch is off doing police work for 19 hours in a row. And I keep thinking, but you got to let the dog out. And, you know, the, all this causes problems. So think ahead of time before you, you give your character something that requires maintenance. Let's put it that way, like, like a baby or a, or, a, or a dog. Now you can roll with that, but after a while, you might want to get back to your, your roots. Good. I'm sure that ranged very far afield from the answer that, that uh, he was looking for. Well, it's good. It's, it's good because these guys are definitely interested in, in what um, professional writers and also the writers of feature judges specifically have to offer um, because that's one of the hallmarks for the writers of feature contest is that it is about helping the, uh, the new writers. So uh -huh. what you said. Well, and, and let me add a little bit more to that, that um, 
I don't think along those lines when I'm when I'm creating a story or a novel. I mean, I'm, I'm I've got the story in my head, and I'm building the plot, and I I kind of build up the characters that that I feel would would fit into that story. Mm-hmm. I don't sit back and I think, um, what about a lesbian autistic Olympic swimmer who lives in the desert. I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't put things together like that and then try to see what to, what to do with it. Um, I, you just, I, I, I come up kind of organically with the characters that I want to put into the story. Okay, good. That helps. So uh, we're going to be wrapping this up momentarily. So anything in particular you'd like to say to um, specifically the aspiring writer, Obviously, you're a Rise of the Future uh, judge, and we are, and you yourself entered many times before proing out, and this is part of the Rise of the Future podcast. Anything you, could, you can say for the aspiring writers regards to the value of the contest for the future of uh, science fiction fantasy? Well, and I, I, we want to remind people because I'm, I'm your guest here and you'll introduce me that we've had 100, I've had 165 books published and, and 23 million copies in print and all this stuff. And they, they see me as, as you know, all those books behind me, they're not all mine, but I got about that many that I've, I've published. That was this year's uh, work she did. That that, that was this year's, but, um, but really this, this was not an overnight success thing. I mean, I, I started submitting to the writers of the future contest when it was brand new, when I was a brand new writer and I sent in a story every single quarter i i really wanted to win this contest or mm-hmm. or to get to that workshop and i sent stories in and sent stories in and sent stories in and and i don't remember what it was I mean, you looked it up in your records at one point but i think i submitted 17 or 18 times before mm-hmm. uh, uh before i i sold a novel so then i i basically proed out i couldn't submit anymore uh but it's not like an overnight success i've got uh a trophy in my office that, that names me the writer with no future because I could produce more rejection slips than any other writer at a, at an entire writing conference that this is, think of it as, as this, a glacier moving. It's like one centimeter at a time and you keep trying and keep trying. You don't just write a story and go, um, there, now I'm a successful writer. It, it's you got to uh, follow up one story and you got to get better every single time and you got to keep reading and keep writing your novel and keep rewriting your novel. And And one of my mentors was Dean Kuntz way, way back when I was starting out. And a, a quote that I had up on my, uh, my bulletin board for a very long time from him was that um, you'd be amazed at how many writers wrote really bad first and second and third and fourth novels. And you have to remember that the first million words you write is just practice. And if you can get paid for doing your practice, great, but just, it's just practice. You're still learning and I'm still learning. I like to try to do something better or bigger or, or in a different way with every project I do just because it keeps it interesting for me. So there's my advice. Well, thank you very much. That's great advice. So thank you very much, Kevin, for being on this uh, podcast. To everybody else listening, subscribe to the Rise of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Rise of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. Rise and illustrates the future contest created by Owen Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Kevin. (laughs) Thanks, John. It's great to see you again. Great to see you too. 